Welcome to another episode in the Search for Racial Equity series, a global forum offering an in-depth study and dialogue of racial equity and justice. We amplify the most authentic and powerful voices of our time in the racial justice movement while using our global platform to create safe spaces for the most important and timely discussions. As the world continues to fight for racial justice, many of us wonder the same thing. How can we make a real, lasting difference? Meaningful change often begins with meaningful conversation. To contribute to that dialogue and our commitment to racial equity and inclusion, Google has launched a weekly series on our Talks at Google YouTube channel and here in podcast form that amplifies some of the most authentic and influential voices of our time and this global movement. The Search for Racial Equity series hosts authentic, open discussions that reckon with the structural and systemic racism Black people have experienced over generations. To find the video of this talk and all others from the series, please visit g.co slash talks at Google slash racial equity. In this episode, we discuss the new book, Punching the Air, which is a collaboration between author E.B. Zaboy and activist Dr. Youssef Salam, who is also one of the exonerated Central Park Five. In this talk, Googler Malika Saadazar, YouTube's global head of human rights, is in conversation with the authors, and the talk is centered on the impact of hope and storytelling. Zaboy and Salam talk about harnessing the power of art and storytelling. Hello, my name is Malika Saadazar, and I am YouTube's global head for human rights. And I am so honored and privileged to be in conversation with Dr. Yusuf Salam and E.B. Zoboy. It is a pleasure to be here with you all as well. Thank you for having us, Malika. Thank you. So I want to get started on, on what brings us together. And what brings us together is this beautiful book, Punching the Air. I want to understand what is the origin story of this book and how the two of you have come together around the book. Dr. Yusuf Salam, let's begin with you. Yes, the origin story of this book is loosely based on my life and my experiences, but it's really um, the experiences that we both experienced and seen in, in, in New York and around New York as we were growing up. And we wanted to basically tell the story of what it is like to be a young person of color, trapped in the system, seen as guilty, having to prove yourself innocent, um, full of hope. And thus the name of the character, Amal, means hope. And that's what we wanted to build it around. So I met Youssef in the spring of 1999 at Hunter College. And at that time, he had not yet been exonerated. Um, and he walked into our classroom and the professor immediately knew who he was. It took us some time because the Central Park Five jogger case had happened 10 years prior and we didn't remember him, you know, he'd grown up. So when we found out that he was indeed Yusef Salam of the Central Park Five, I chased after him to get a new story because I was the editor of my college's newspaper and uh, I needed to get an interview for him, from him. And we ended up walking from 68th Street, Lexington, which is where Hunter College is, all the way up to Harlem. And we talked quite a bit about his case and about uh, a certain character uh, by the name of Donald Trump. Um, and you can share with us why you wanted to share that with me at that time. I think Youssef was trying to let me know that they did not do it. 
And the overall consensus in my school community was that they were indeed innocent. But I think the larger New York population still felt differently. But ultimately, um, I was a journalist and I wanted to get his story. I wanted to interview him for our college newspaper. I never got a chance to get that story from him, but I ran into him um, in 2017 when I was um, promoting my debut novel, a young adult novel, American Street. And I saw him uh, selling his self-published book of poetry. And I was shocked at the fact that here was this man who had this incredible story that started with him as a teenager. And here I was writing for teens and the world didn't know his story yet. Ken's, Ken Burns' documentary told the story of the Central Park Five, but not a lot of young people were watching documentaries. And this was before the When They See Us Netflix series. And I thought this was a great opportunity for him to tell a story inspired by his experiences and for me to help him tell that story in the same way I wanted to tell his story as a journalist, uh, as a college student. So, so I want to just go back um, to, to who you are, Dr. Salam, and why walking into this classroom turned heads. Um, you are, your story is the story of the Central Park Five, is the story of the Exonerated Five. Can you share with us who you were in April 1989 and what happened to you? Well, one of the, one of the beautiful things about my story, my personal story, my personal journey, is that I've often equated it with a love story between God and his people. You know, me being a child in this particular situation, I would always say that I was, I was a student in life. And as they say, when a student is ready, the teacher will come. And all that time I had been preparing myself unbeknownst to me. And some, some, some of it was, was, things that I was very much aware of, but I was always still questioning, I wonder what, what, what the final outcome is going to be. Am I going to be found innocent? You know, I had known that I had not done the crime and I was doing someone else's time. But here I was, right? In 1989, I was probably very similar to every single 15 year old boy today, tomorrow, yesterday. That normalness, that that desire to perhaps now want to play video games or go outside and go on your skateboard and your bike or go into the park and climb trees and just have fun. Just be a normal child, not understanding yet that you were born into a war. And you were born into a war based on the color of your skin. And the beauty of being born into that war is that you're automatically born on the side of right because you're born in struggle. You're born, in, you're born uh, fighting for the, um, you're born fighting for the ability to break generational curses. And so everything that's happening to you, you may not realize, but it's actually happening for you. It's happening and creating you to be the person that you need to be tomorrow by the, by the pressure of today. That pressure is going to create that diamond. You're gonna be thrown in the fire and you're gonna become the modern day Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego coming through the fire without even smelling like smoke, you know? And it's, it's interesting because while I was going through it, 
I couldn't see the end yet. But then I went, then I went in it. And when I went in it, I had tremendous visions and tremendous opportunities to not only pray, but in the visions of meditating, it was like God was speaking to me. You know, when I prayed, it was me speaking to God, but my, my hopes and my dreams were being imprinted on my mind. And I was able to hold on to that. I was able to imagine what it would like to one day come out of here and walk, walk home and be free. Yeah. But, you know, Let's be clear, what happened to you just in the plain terms of, of New York in 1989, there's a brutal, horrible rape of a young woman running in Central Park, and you and four other boys, boys, not men, boys, are charged wrongfully in her rape the uh, accusation against you is then turned into a conviction in which at the age of 15, you are taken to prison and you serve seven years behind bars. Uh, and all of you have been convicted as guilty. One of you serves 13 years behind bars. And we then have a situation where all of you who come out then as men out of prison insist on your innocence and finally do achieve the recognition by New York that you are innocent. We know that the actual person who was guilty of this heinous crime confessed to that crime. And you have, along with the other men, fought for the understanding of your innocence. And, and we know that, that that fight for innocence was captured in Ken Burns' documentary, as well as uh, in Ava DuVernay's When They See Us. It's powerful to when, when you just give the facts of what happened, of wrongful arrest, wrongful conviction of children, of your insistence on innocence as men. It is powerful to hear the way that you talk about holding that experience as a boy who believed in spirituality, who believed in spirituality as a young boy who believed in there was something there for you despite all the ways in which your humanity was being denied. It feels to me like that, that insistence on humanity, on a child's humanity, is so much a part of the character among. Is that fair to say? I would say yes. I would say that the the overarching humanity, the overarching desire is that equity that we talk about, wanting to be seen as the same in many ways, meaning human being, you know, those human rights that um, translated from the civil rights era, you know, the fact that we had to we had to um, say that we matter. We had to echo that. We had to walk around and say, I am. And then whether that mean, whether that next statement be, I am a man or I am powerful or I am worthy, whatever those things are. And here I was going through this situation, just like many young people of color, especially young men, young boys. You know, they have, the, as Dr. Dranza Kunjufu has laid out, the conspiracy to destroy the black boys, volume one through three. And then right again, 
turning around and creating the conspiracy to destroy the black girls. Coupling that with all of the experiential information that we've had and been given through the education of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson and the, and the miseducation of the Negro by Dr. Carter G. Woodson. You know, this, this thing that happened to me is what I would often describe as slavery going on by another name. Mm -hmm. It is the new Jim Crow. It is the ability for states' rights to continue because you have the privatizations of prisons. You have, you know, the prison labor um, being utilized even now in the era of COVID-19, mm -hmm. where they're saying, hey, we want to be able to use, you know, prison labor to create hand sanitizer, but yet we don't want to provide safe conditions for the inmates to be in, you know, and, and it's all of those things wrapped into this experience that we are sharing with everyone through Punching the Air. You know, mm -hmm. Punching the Air is our ability to utilize this moment for people to bring up their chairs that Shirley Chisholm talked about. You know, mm -hmm. they're bringing up their folding chairs and they're sitting down with each other, having this conversation, looking at the life of what it is like to be a young person of color, looking at the injustice of it all, looking at the rush to judgment, which causes people to make life-altering mistakes. I don't even want to say mistakes, life-altering mistakes. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, in my case, you had five brutes being accused of raping a white woman. Fast forward to today, you had a woman in Central Park accusing a black man of doing something that he obviously was not doing because we all saw the video. And so there was a legal lynching that was happening while the actual perpetrator was out committing more crime. And that's the, that's the terrible truth about getting it wrong. Yeah. The terrible truth about this idea of legal, right? Everyone thinks that, okay, well, if they go through the legal system, then they get all that they do. And if they, they, and if they lose, they lose. And if they win, they win. Yeah. You know. I mean, you, you've talked about it's a criminal system of injustices. Um, and I, I, would, I would ask you to talk about what that meant for you as a 15-year-old boy behind bars, wrongfully convicted. What did, what did that mean for you then and now that when we think about the criminal justice system, your experience of it and the experience of so many black and brown communities is that it is a system of injustices. I think that that, that it, it, it rears its head. It presents itself as kind, as loving, as caring, right? It is the, um, the outgrowth of a system that says we're here to protect and serve. But then when you get run over by those spike wheels of justice, when you get stopped on the streets, when you get beat up and harassed, when, you, when your name becomes a hashtag, you then are introduced to the American nightmare. You, you, you want the American dream. You're being told that you're in the land of milk and honey. You're in the land where all things are, are the, the possibilities are all there. And then you wake up and you're in the American nightmare. That is the criminal aspect of it. Because there's on the one hand, 
folks who may live life and never go to prison for, for tremendous crimes that they have done or a crime that they may have done, right? And they coin terms to, to Im create an immunization around this, this person, affording them safeties through words like affluenza. You know, they coin ideas to give you a better understanding of what's going on by letting you know that that person has the complexion for acceptance. Yeah. Therefore, I must have the complexion for rejection. The whole way that the criminal justice system wraps humanity around some, and often that some is those who have wealth or have uh, the privilege of skin color, of whiteness, and denies humanity too often to those without money, denies humanity to those who are black and brown. Um, Eb, I, I, you know, I, I like you, uh, was a, a young person when Central Park Five happened, when the Central Park um, jogging case was everywhere uh, in the news. And, uh, you know, I, I would love for us to, to really give people context around what New York felt like at that time and how how the, the children who were accused of being the perpetrators were described every day in the, in the news and what the feeling was like in New York? Well, several things. If I talk about New York City in the 80s, I am coming from the perspective of an immigrant child um, being raised by a single mother. And when we talk about violence and crime in New York City, we're also talking about Black boyhood culture and Latin Latino boyhood culture, um, because from my perspective, this is what I was seeing on the news. Uh, these were the per uh, perpetuators of crime. These were the victims of crime and violence, uh, as well as Black and Latina women. Uh, so crime was just a huge part of New York City at the time. Um, mainly because of, uh, you know, in the 1970s, New York was on the brink of uh, financial, financial ruin. Um, I believe it was almost bankrupt. Uh, so it's not the New York City that we know today. And we also know that New York City um, gave birth to hip hop and hip hop was came out of just pure desperation from young people. And the New York City Yusef and I grew up with grew up in was one where children played outside all the time, despite the crime and violence. So the Central Park Five case, when it happened, it was almost a boiling, boiling point. Mm -hmm. uh, I also remember as a first or second grader, uh, the subway vigilante case, mm -hmm. Bernhard Getz, yeah. where crime was just so over the top. Uh, young people seemed to have taken over the streets that here was this white man who, uh, you know, who um, was carrying a gun. I mean, I remember hearing the languaging around children, um, these boys, as they were wilding. They were a wolf pack, right? So the very description of these Black children was animalistic, right? Was reinforcing all of the other tropes that we heard then of black men, black boys as predators. And all of that was out there every single day. 
what and 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 we also were in a New York where the police were lawless. Yes. Where the police were not about the protection of black communities, but really um, the exploitation, the preying upon the lawlessness on the part of of the police. And and Dr. Salam, you were in a very situation of lawlessness where as a 15-year-old boy, if you could talk about how you you saw, you experienced that lawlessness of the police as that child. That process of of living in a in a nightmare, wanting it to end, being denied food, being denied water, being denied the relationships, the familial relationships of family, you know, it causes you to want to get out of there by any means necessary. You know, and in, in the case of the Central Park Jagger case, there were many of us who made false confessions. But the thing was that there was a hope in those false confessions that the truth would come out. But what should have happened, which was criminal, is that these experts, right? It wasn't neophyte cops that came in and were interrogating us. These were the elite of the elite. This was Manhattan North Homicide Detective Squad, a special group of police officers, detectives, that you could not even be considered to be a part of unless you had 20 years on the job. So imagine a person being on a job for 20 years, any profession, you are an expert. You can tell the truth from the false by, by hearing it, but more importantly, by collaborating with your colleagues. Okay, what is that one saying? What's this one saying? Man, that doesn't match anything that mine is saying. My keep, minds keep saying that they didn't see anything, you know? Or the complete facts in the case not matching anything that was found at the at the scene of the crime. And so forensically nothing matching, verbally nothing matching. And then you manufacture and seize, as Ibi was talking about, you seize on the fears of the public. And you create this story that begins to be to tell a, a narration that kind of sounds maybe believable, right? Mm -hmm. But nobody has any DNA evidence on them. There is no dioxyribonucleic acid connecting anyone to this scene. A woman lost three-fourths of her blood. She was brutally raped. She was bludgeoned. All of these things were known or became known. And so there was a trichnology of sorts when you come to cases like this where they put out big, bold headlines in order to make the imprint on the mind. Like, you can't take back what you've seen, which is why we have those protections like rated R, rated PG, in, in, NC-17, and all of the likes. Because we want the public to know that you have to be prepared to explain what it is that your young child is seeing if you happen to expose them to this. And I think that that American tradition of denying the status of child to black boys and black girls, the um, systematic denial of being whole as a child, if you are black or brown, is so much part of your story and part of Amal's story. But you decide that this is also a story for Amal of hope. 
And I, I, I want to understand what is the hope that you created for Amal and how do you want young people to understand the, the suffering that Amal is subject to, but also this issue of hope as his name represents Amal is in Arabic is hope. Oh, oh. Uh, Malik, I want to go back to uh, look, go back a little bit to something you said earlier, and just well, you've reiterated it several times is the fact that um, this is a child. Uh, so I write. I got an MFA in writing for children and young adults, mm -hmm. and what was important for us is that to remember that Yusef was a child when this happened to him, as well as the other four members. And I believe one of them was in middle school when this happened. And this part of his story needed to be told. I be, um, being that they're all adults now, it is so easy for them to go out into the world and talk about injustice and all these lo lofty ideas about what America has been doing for so long that we forget the child in the story. Yeah. So it was important for me to approach this as a mother and the opening poems is about Amal remembering his birth. And the idea behind that is that a child is born free, right? A mother takes care of this child. We feed the child, we, we pass on knowledge, we bring the child to school in the hopes that they become adults and citizens who participate in the world in the hopes that they follow their dreams and get a career and grow old and collect social security. That's the freedom, right? That's the promise that all American citizens have. But in the course of that journey, that is not true for every American citizen. And that is not true for every child that is born. And that is the ultimate injustice. That is the ultimate evil, I believe. And so the story is not just about criminal, the, the criminal justice system, the school to prison pipeline, or the prison industrial complex. It is about the inner journey that the child has to go through to make sense of everything that is happening around him. And this came from conversations with Youssef. Youssef is incredibly thoughtful and can reflect in a very wise and deeply powerful way um, on how this you know, connects to larger issues. But we tend to forget, well, what did you do to make it through to the next day? How did you hold on to your humanity? And this is what we wanted to focus on. This boy has to hold on to something to make it to the next day, the next day after that, without any clue as to when this will end, right? Imagine sentence, long sentences where you don't know when you're going to get your freedom and where do you find that freedom? Because Amal, like many children in this country, is put behind bars as a child and has to make sense of what it means to be a child in prison. And, and how is it that he is able to be able to hold on to his hope? How is it that he, Amal, is able to find the light in the darkness? I would say that the biggest, the biggest how is he had to remember. He had to remember not only things that were planted in him, 
but he had to remember the story of his history. He had to be able to have that kind of Sankofa moment in order to be able to become great, in order to be able to realize that he mattered. There's a psychosocial reality to him being valued in community, in society, in self, that speaks to the relevance of he is going through something, but the truth is that he really is growing through something. And in his growth and development, there is something to be understood. And, and, and it's not just the individual story of Amal, but it's our story. It's our understanding of understand of, 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 of putting our place in where we are, who we are, why we are, what we are, you know, when when are we, you know? And once you understand those whys, you know, as Nietzsche says, you can live anyhow. You you then are are, are like clay. You are you are in a way um, in agreement with the creative force in shaping your life and allowing your life to be molded in the way that it needs to be in order for you to be a product of what you need to become. And so you get those lemons in life and you make lemonade. Yeah. You haven't yet heard, you know, the awesome, um, great philosopher Cardi B yet, but you understand <laughs> that when you fall down nine times, you got to get up 10. You have to keep getting up. You have to keep showing up. Absolutely. And Evie, for, um, for so many, right, who are in places of suffering, who are in places of um, trauma, whether it's because of incarceration or it's because of some other form of denied humanity, storytelling and art becomes a place of freedom. And storytelling and art pulls Amal through and Dr. Salam, I know that in what you have shared, storytelling is that life force, is that place of freedom in the middle of, of the, the denied expression. Absolutely. You, you, you become the modern day griot, the modern day, modern day jelly. You know, you have to understand too that even in the birth of hip hop, there was that specialness going on, the carrying on tradition, the ability to morph into this new space, what needs to happen in order for you to continue, you know? And I think that that's the beauty of it all, being able to tell your story. Because if you allow others to tell your story and you never give yourself your voice, then you become voiceless you're always being told, oh no, this is what that is. But once you get an opportunity to read for yourself, to listen for yourself, to conversate for self, then magic happens, transformation happens. Mm -hmm. There's beauty in that. Mm -hmm. I, I wanna add that uh, I think art making is a way that we try to figure out what's happening to us and why it's happening. It's the questions that come first. Mm -hmm. you know, who am I? is the first question and how can I, and, and we use different mediums, you know, and for Amal and Punching the Air, it is both art and poetry. It is the magic of colors and words. And 
I always wanted to, we can't talk about New York City in the 80s without talking about <laughs> hip hop. And one of the first things when Youssef and I decided to collaborate, just getting a sense of who he was as a teenager. And I, I knew that as a college student when he worked, walked into Hunter College, but one of the first things he said was, I was black medallion, no gold. And if you remember, you know, it's one of those, well, you just have to know. <laughs> black, well, black medallion was the, the leather medallions that young people used to wear, that we used to wear with the Africa symbol in the middle. And the no gold part was other rappers were wearing the gold rope chains with the dollar sign or the Jesus piece. And there was a dichotomy before you you had East Coast, West Coast dichotomy. It was mm -hmm. conscious hip hop, politically aware hip hop versus materialistic hip hop. And uh, young, us young people divided ourselves into those fa factions to say that we're all about culture. We're all about um, freeing Mandela. You know, um, anti-apartheid movement was the thing back then as opposed to getting a bag or getting that money. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, just saying that, let me know that that was his worldview. And that worldview comes from art making, from figuring out the world. This is how I understand the world. This is how I want to identify with the world. And this is how I'm going to express myself. And if you saw the pants that Yusef was wearing on the night, you'll talk about that, Yusef, the pants that he was wearing on the night that he was um, on that, that infamous night in Central Park. He had yeah. the Africa symbol. He had red, black and green. He had a Rastafarian. You had all these symbols that represent represented a sort sort of social awareness uh, connection to African consciousness and Pan-Africanism. And all of that is expressed through art. Absolutely. I mean, I, it, it, go ahead, Yusuf. No, I just—I I'm, I'm, have to apologize because I was looking around to grab some of these uh, these pieces of history, right? And it's funny because as, as you talked about <laughs> you know, the whole uh, black medallions, no gold. This was me a few days in April of 1989. As you can see, it says GQ April 1989. Of course, over here, um, this is the type of stuff that we did also in prison. Um, this is a few days before I got arrested. This is a few days before the incident, you know, and that was my, you know, that was the way I, I dressed. I had the, the Rastafarian belt, the crown on my head, the black medallions, the culture, mm -hmm. the expression of culture, the, the, um, the thing that identified you and allowed you to move throughout neighborhoods and community and be accepted and be be protected in a way, you know, um, yeah. And it was also the counter narrative to a mainstream culture that said black boys and black girls and blackness was to be feared, was to be reviled, was to be seen less than. And I think that that is, as you said, that is always the way that we hold on to art and creativity and story is it becomes the way that we speak out our liberation, our defiance, and our worth. Um, and, and I think that's so important that both of you as parents, right, have written into life this character, Amal, who is who represents for other children that no matter how hurt you might be or how um, 
much trauma might come your way, that there is always this power of art and storytelling that is there for you. Can, can both of you talk about what that meant to, to write that type of character, to write this book as parents and parents with the stories of the New York that you came out of, as parents with the stories and the understanding of um, the long fight of resistance um, and dignity that is part of, of how you grew up, even though very different, very much um, the same in terms of that fight. Yeah, you know, Donald Trump, he, he, the role that he played in my case, and as we talk about art, we talk about things that are sometimes intentional, right? We look at the book, the cover of Punching the Air and the beauty that you see of it all. You know, you look at other pieces of artwork, whether it be a Basquiat or, you know, anything, anything that represents something, right? And you realize that two weeks after we were accused in this case, the Central Punk Jogger case, this case that was the um, the telling of my, my life, right? Donald Trump pays $85,000 to run an ad to be placed in New York City's major newspapers, calling for what? Doing to do what? He's calling for the death penalty. We hadn't even gone to trial. Two weeks after we were accused, the ad was in the papers. That means that the thought, the process, the, 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 the creativity of creating this ad was happening prior to that two week period. And so there was a tremendous rush to judgment. And here you had this wealthy um, personality being, you know, using his money to change the outcome of a case, that outcome becoming guilty. And, and, and really there was a hope, I think, that the outcome be more than that. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at what happened and how people showed their heads. There's a book called Savage Portrayals by Natalie Byfield that talks about the Central Park Jogger case as she worked in the media and she was pulling all of these headlines out and all of the language out of the news articles. And she puts it into this book, Savage Portrayals. And there was this desire in seizing on the fears of the public to also have this lynch mob form, yes. right? The witch hunt be a reality, but the lynch mob forming. And that lynch mob then saying, we want to do something to them. We want justice. And that mob justice becoming modern day Emmett Till style justice, where Emmett Till was murdered, drugged from his bed, beat to death, shot in the head and a cotton gin tied around his neck and then placed in the river. And with the Central Park Five, as we were known back then, other personalities thought it was okay because, see, Donald Trump was whispering to the darkest enclaves of society, the most sinister parts of society, that it was okay. Just as he's doing now, it's okay. You know, we can we can say states' rights. We can we can you know what does he say? In the good old days, you would have been carried out on a stretcher. You know. People like Pat Buchanan began to write in the papers, well, why don't we just take the eldest one? Who was Corey Wise, who was 16 years old, a, still a child? 
why don't we take the eldest one and hang him from a tree in Central Park, is what he wrote in the New York Post. Why don't we take the others and horsewhip them? And we should do this by June 1st. There was no justice. And had it been carried out that way, then there would have been a certain sick satisfaction that wasn't, wasn't warranted. You know, we would have gone to our deaths. We would have become hashtags. The truth perhaps would have never come out. There would have been a cloudy murkiness around this story that wouldn't have given a final finality to it. People would have still been on one side saying, nah, something was wrong with that case. Others would have been saying, good riddance. And it would have been a narrative of black America, that same narrative that people are experiencing today. But we know now better. Even in the education system, we know that sometimes when we as we review with our children, the great thing that happened with COVID-19 and social distancing is that we didn't have the opportunity to send our children to school for safety reasons. So we had to go into the Zoom classrooms and things of that nature. And we got an opportunity to review with our children with, and realize like, okay, you're learning global history. What have you been taught about Africa? We didn't get to that yet, Dad. So this is where the problem lies. Somewhere in the school system, the child, both one who may have what is considered the complexion for acceptance and other one having the complexion for rejection, being taught at the same time two very different things. One being poured life into, the other one being slowly die, slowly killed. Because the, the, the value of who you are is not being placed back in you. The teaching is not there. Well, I, I want to go back to something that you said. Um, the the time between Central Park Five and the Central Park case that happened a few months ago, um, where uh, a white woman uh, said that a, a, a black man was uh, going to rape her, right? And and that was and, and her her exaggeration and her insult was captured by, uh, by this black man. And, and uh, there was an outcry against her conduct of trying to turn the police against him, um, the threat that the police would be turned against him. Or, or put it this way, going from the Central Park Five, right, which I think is fair to describe that there was a fervor in New York at the time that was akin to a lynch mob to see all of you as the murderers and to deliver this type of mob justice to you as children. From that moment in 1989 to a different kind of moment that we are in now in 2020, where we, because of these cameras, witness a a modern day lynching of George Floyd. I, I'm so curious to hear from both of you, how do you understand this moment that is described as a racial justice movement, movement that we are in a moment of, of changing of norms around race, that we are in a moment of a languaging of Black Lives Matter 
um, of racial justice. How do you see it? And especially, Dr. Salam, how do you see it as someone who's been in the sweep of history from the, the, the total denial of justice for you because of your race to this moment of a movement that talks about Black Lives Matter, that talks about racial justice? I see it as very powerful. I see it as the culmination of all things beautiful that I've been taught. You know, echoing in my head right now are the words of Asada Shakur, Joanne Chesimar, known to some, where she said, we have the power to fight. We have the power to win. We must love each other and protect each other. We have nothing to lose but our chains. It is the beauty of the moment of being awakened from your stupor, where you realize that you are the modern day character in the matrix you are neo and you are neo with the ability to look around and realize that we are all neo we all have the ability now to refuse my mother said to me something that i never forgot and i always share with people especially young people that when she came into the police precinct to get me out of the clutches of the system she told me Stop talking to them. She, as the modern day Harriet, didn't have the time to convince me of what was going on. She didn't come in and say, hey, baby, how you doing? Is everything okay? Are they, how are they treating you? She had to give me proper instructions. She said, stop talking to them. And then she said to me, which is what I tell young people all the time. She said, they need you to participate in whatever it is that they're trying to do, do not participate, refuse. It was, it was the, the, the beauty of looking back and understanding why she told me that, understanding how you impart that same um, strength in your children, understanding how do you share that in your words through punching the air, to give us all the idea of everything matters and how we live is based on how we all live, but we have to choose to live better and we can. And now is the time to put our shoulders down, push to the grind and collectively say no. Say we refuse, say we choose better. And then, and then move in the meditation and reality of knowing that it will be better. Not just hoping, but move knowing that it will be better. Pushing forward as if it is better. Utilizing uh, your thoughts and ideas and energy. Because nothing will ever be the same. Our new normal is being created by us. We are emerging out of this global pandemic and the, the expression of oppression as new beings. This is what's happening. I'm going to name, no name, the, the artist. She's on Twitter going off about prison abolition and, um, you know, and communism and socialism and things that people are afraid to talk about now 
But I guarantee you that teenagers are talking about it because they don't know what college is going to look like for them. They don't know what their what the job prospects are going to look like for them. So they want to tear it all down, right? I don't know if you remember the movie Putney Swope, uh, Yusef, where at the end of the movie, you gotta look, you gotta watch it, Putney Swope. The last, the last famous words to that movie is don't rock the boat, sink the ship, right? Because it's not, is it working for everybody? And one of the things we had talked about, Yusef, is when our professor said, you want to end it right now? We can end oppression and racism right now if we simply get up from the table. You know, there is no more asking for a seat at the table. There is getting up from the table. We're not at this dinner party. We're gonna form our own systems. That is a radically different way of thinking about how society is changing. But as radical as it sounds, young people are starting to think in that way. And that is one book where we start to plan to see, plant the seed of radical art making, right? Mm -hmm. We can't change it, but we can make radical art. Right. right. It's, a, it's a beautiful way of putting it that, you know, you can, if you're going to leave the table, let's create something in defiance and even more beautiful. And that's what, what the radical art and the radical storytelling is and is in in um, punching the air too. I, I think so much of um, what Dr. Salam's story is of Central Park Five um, is about a narrative that was devaluing of black life. And so much of the work that has happened in the last couple of years is about creating those new narratives, changing the old narrative, putting something authentic and real and beautiful in the place of the old narrative that's a new narrative, that's representative. And I, I wonder what are, what are the new narratives that you have created, want to see created and have spun out through the book, Punching the Air? I think the, I think the biggest thing is to know that you're not crazy that in this newness of what you're thinking, in this radicalness of what you're thinking, the beauty of, of, of the collaboration that's happened between Evie and I is that we got the opportunity to talk about not only the things that we both have known, but also things that we didn't know we shared in terms of upbringing and, 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 and so forth and so on. And I think that that thing that has to be understood is for one, you come here with what you need to give to the world, you are the change. And if you conform to what it is that you see and experience and allow, then that thing that Evie is talking about, about the system, the fundamental essence, the foundation of it all, we think that it is, it is enough to join it. We forget that we need to be the spooks who sat by the door because we have to be the gatekeepers to be able to unlock the minds of other people, other, per other folks that will assist in the, the ability to be the change that we seek, as opposed to saying, man, I got a good job. I'm, I, I got a good paycheck. I got it. You know, no, it's about making sure that we correct and not reflect. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. It's crazy because 
you know, when, when, when I think about the, the meditative process of creating art and allowing it to just flow and become beautiful, it was the poetry of it all. It was the actual picking up a pencil or a pen and drawing. It was, you know, me now creating pieces of art like this, you know, where I am um, giving myself permission to take something that was once really ugly, mm. right? This says CP5 on the front. And then really beautiful on the bottom, it says exonerated five. Mm -hmm. And this is actually a piece of a piece of art that I created that I call the freedom medal. You know, and as I, as I wear it often, a lot of people ask me about it and it becomes a conversation piece where I can tell them about history. I can tell them about me and I can tell them about why we need change and how that change looks. And the beautiful thing about what Evie is saying is that in the in the desire to want radical change now, we know that that may not happen, but we also know that we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. We know that we are playing a part and we are planting those seeds. And we know that as the marathon continues, as Nipsey Hussle said, we get the opportunity to participate. We get the, the opportunity to show up in a very powerful way to give our gifts to the world and be able to stand back and say, I'm so proud that I was able to give everything. As my good friend, Les Brown says, live full and die empty because we don't want to live with regret. We don't want to be at the end of our life and say, oh man, if I could only just write that last book, give that recipe, teach people this or that, you know, here we are now full of life, given the opportunity to do it all and we should do it all. Are there any other thoughts that each of you want to share with one another or with the audience that will be watching? Hmm. So I want to say something about the magic of serendipity. Um, I did not set out to write a book like Punching the Air, although seeing black boys and men on the news, seeing the violence in my community, the crime in my community growing up was something that I always wanted to address in my books. But, you know, I, I didn't have to run into uh, Youssef in that college classroom. I didn't have to chase after him. Um, and when I met him in 2017, we didn't, we didn't see each other from across the room or anything like that. A professor in Las Vegas had invited some black women authors to her home. And she told us she had invited someone else just to come break bread and talk. And in walks Youssef Salam into this woman's home and I'm like, hey, Yusef, how you doing? You know, and the rest is history. Anything else? Because Dr. Salam, you have so many words of wisdom. Is there anything else uh, that you want to ask your, your co-conspirator, um, your co-magician uh, in writing the story and the kind of conversation that you want all of us to have with you through this book? Uh, is there anything to be added to that? Well, I mean, the, the only thing that I can add to that is the beauty of believing, right? There's this thing that happens in life where you begin to not believe in yourself. You stop believing. You stop knowing that you can do all that you can. And I want us to know that we can, on a, on a very matter-of-fact level, believe again. Mm -hmm. What was taken from me was that ability to believe. 
And the beauty of me um, climbing back to, to stand up again was I had been knocked down in life. I had been so afraid to live life that I was walking around where every step was a choice. Is this step going to be the rug being pulled out from underneath my feet again? And so I was walking around on eggshells with my head down inside. And then something happened where I met the right people at the right time. And I look at it as the stars lining up. And I look at it as the culmination of me being able to describe this story. That personal journey that I went through was not for nothing. It was because I was supposed to get those indelible scars. But I was supposed to survive. And oftentimes when we look back, we can see what it is that we were going through much better than when we're going through it. But the thing that we have to continue to do is to keep on going. We can't ever give up. The period has not been placed at the end of our sentence. And like now, we're still here. We're still vibrant. We're still vibrating at high levels. And the period still has not been placed. And so there's so much more to do. There's so much beauty to give. There's so much things that we have to birth collectively and individually. And the great thing about it is that these collaborations happen because they are supposed to happen. When you see and you look back, you realize it and you say, man, I was supposed to meet Evie way back when. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about 1999, right? Here we are full circle. So just to really quickly say something about that that I didn't say earlier, one of the, the, um, one of the, uh, what's the word I'm thinking about? There was, there was like an excitement of being able to talk to Ibi, right? There was an excitement of someone wanting to hear my story, but then there was also the very present fear of how, how am I going to be received? Am I going to be judged? Or is, is, is this person going to be a person who understands or is this person going to be a person who, and I had this very, very real experience. There's a scene in the end of uh, Malcolm X by Spike Lee where a woman, an elder, comes up to Malcolm's character, Denzel, and says, I recognize you. Everything is going to be all right. And I had that same kind of experience where Elder came up to me and she said, I recognize you. Why did you do that to that woman? Mm. And the whole bottom of my heart fell out because I thought that she would, as of all people know and understand that this was a, a hoax. Mm. The beauty of what we are now and where we are now is that we can see it. We can understand it. We can identify it, we can explain it, we can help others not become modern day Scottsboro boys, right? Through the efforts that we have. And then more importantly as well, through punching the air, keep on creating uh, beautiful pieces of art and turn ourselves into that beautiful work of art as well. Well, I have to say, Dr. Salam, um, I'm, I'm grateful to you, to the universe, to Evie Zavoy for being able to create a space for all of what you endured, all of the ugliness, the wrongness of what you endured to be turned and catalyzed and an act of alchemy, right? To be, 
to be created as a place of learning and growth and wisdom for all of us. It, it, is, the, it is the lotus out of the mud. Um, I think all of us who know you, who know the story, are torn apart by the fact that you had to endure what you did. Um, but I think we are all grateful for the way that you took that mud and turned it into a lotus so that we know the truth of the story, we know the innocence, and we also understand how this is an unjust criminal legal system, especially for our black and brown communities, and how we understand that we have to create these new radical narratives through storytelling and through art. So thank you for what you have given us. Uh, thank you for your strength. And thank you, um, Evie Zaboy, for being such a beautiful collaborator and creating the space for this kind of, of art and storytelling to be transcendent. I appreciate both of you so much. Thank you. Those were some wonderful questions. I really appreciate it, Malika. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm so, so thankful. I, you know, I, I will say that I know we're at time, but I, I, there's, there's, I, I lived through this time, right? I, I remember, you know, parents who had black boys in New York who wouldn't let their boys out after five o'clock. Um, and I, I remember all of that ugliness and, um, it, it's, it's, it's still enraging to me, everything that played out, even though we're on the other side of justice, right? Even though we're, you know, the narrative was, was finally told with truth. It's still, it's still enraging to me. Um, so I, I'm really thankful that, you know, instead of living in that rage, we can, we can do something that's good and that is about that lightness in the dark. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. And for all of the all of this. This is a this is a great space to be able to talk about these types of things and share these types of things. And often, you know, I think about where I what what this could have gone. Like I could have gone left. Wait. I mean, like if, if that guy didn't didn't confess, right? If 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 if, I mean, if, if Corey if, wasn't in the same prison, right? Like all all of this stuff so easily could have gone the wrong way. It could have, and and that's the beauty of understanding, um, the 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 hand of God, you know, like knowing that, wow, I wasn't left, yeah, you know that 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 um, description of walking or footprints, I think it's called, yeah. you know, and you look and then you're like, man, God, what happened? How come you, you know, no, I was carrying you, <laughs> you know, you you survived, you're still here, you know, and I think that, you know. I often think about the words of Dr. Maya Angelou, where she said, you should be angry. And when you mm -hmm. think about anger, anger is something that changes and allows you to change conditions. Mm -hmm. She said, you should be angry, but you must not be bitter. She said, bitterness is like a cancer. It eats upon the host. It doesn't do anything to the object of its displeasure. And then she teaches us how we all can become alchemists. Mm -hmm. She says, so use that anger. You dance it. You march it, you vote it, you do everything about it, you talk it, never stop talking it. Well, and you I think have done that. You have absolutely done that. I'm Melanie Parker. Thank you for joining us for the search for racial equity. Let us march on till victory is won.